0: been there when I was there, and he's like, oh yeah, that's my home church. No, it's not. Because the church is a gathered people, which is why Scripture commands us not to, uh, not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together, but to do so all the more as the day draws near. I think this is so important. I hear over and over and over again, from teachers, that online education, while better than nothing, didn't work. Students are coming into their grade levels behind where they need to be, and then teachers, the standard isn't changing, so now they're getting students who are behind, and they got to move them farther than is reasonable in one year, and so then they're leaving their classrooms behind. And, and, and for some reason, as a church, the, the church is still clinging to the idea that it will work. Schools have figured out it doesn't work. We as a church need to figure out it doesn't work. The church is a gathered people. And so we take steps together to love God. God doesn't just want us to know him. He wants us to love him. But we also want to make him known. Why did we not say that we take steps together to love God and invite others to love him or make him loved? Well, the reality is we don't have control over the way people respond to the gospel. So we want to do our best as we gather to take steps together to love God and then go out and make him known so that others can love him too. But but really, we can't measure success as a church in terms of people's response. We don't want to measure ourselves in terms of response. We just want to measure ourselves in terms of faithfulness to what God has called us to do. That's the mission that God has put Trinity on. To take steps together to love God and to make him known. How are we going to live out that mission? what we do here as we gather to equip the saints is is really good. And we're we're not seeing much change in what we're doing as a gathered church. But we want to put emphasis on the fact that what we do as a church scattered is every bit as important as what we do as a church gathered. When we leave this place, what we do as we interact with the world is every bit as important as what we do when we gather here. And so we want to reach 500 families. Don't overthink that word. The single lady who lives next door is a family that needs reached. The, 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 fam, the, the, the neighbors who have three families living next door is a family that needs to be reached. But We want to reach 500 families in the Walla Walla Valley over the next 500 years. And if every, if every family... In Trinity, would invest for one year in one family over the next five years. And, and with the purpose of engaging them with the gospel, of telling them who Jesus is and what he's done, we will exceed this 500 number. And so we, we practice hospitality. What is hospitality? It's, it's hosting a relationship. You could set out China and make a fancy meal and not practice hospitality. You could take a coworker out for lunch and exercise hospitality. You could order pizza and put it on paper plates and exercise hospitality. Hospitality is hosting relationships where strangers become friends and friends become family of God. Because we just get to know people. We we put ourselves in positions to to know people who who don't come to church, our neighbors, our coworkers our relatives, and so we want to reach 500 families in the next five years. We're going to start unveiling some ways in which we're going to be able to measure this too because it's great to be able to talk about it, but how do we actually measure that? Well, we've got some things coming, and I'm really, really excited about this. Now, uh, back to our point, what does mercy have to do with all of that? Well, I believe that it is the mercy of God that should motivate us to that end. I believe it's God's mercy towards us that should lead us to mercy with others. Now, why is this out of order? It's out of order because it's a little difficult to talk about God's mercy. We're going to have to talk a little bit today about his grace before talking about his justice and his wrath. But I don't want to wait till March to have this New Year conversation, so we're going to take... Uh, mercy first. But uh, let me tell you that this is an important concept for us to understand because James chapter 2 verse 13 tells us that mercy triumphs over judgment. If we don't understand God's justice, we can't understand his mercy. Now what is God's justice? It is his right and righteous opposition towards that which is wrong. This is his right and righteous opposition towards that which is wrong. And his wrath is the fact that, that it makes him angry. And we have to grapple with the fact that we have a God who gets angry. I usually don't want to think of a God who's angry at my sin. There's an example. I know I've used it here before, but I'm, I come back to it because it's just one of those things that made me so angry. Some years ago, uh, I believe it was in the UB, I read a headline article uh, about a, um, this, this sting operation that was done across California, Oregon, Washington, and into Canada where 500 arrests were made because there was this large ring of people who were trafficking foster and adopted kids. The 500 people arrested were all doctors, lawyers, and pastors. And they were trafficking vulnerable children in the name of church ministry and legal work and medical care. And I don't want to believe in a God who's not angry at that. I don't want to believe a God who can look at that and say, oh, that's no big deal. But the reality is, if those things are a big deal to God, then so are my sins. And God is justly and righteously opposed to those things. In fact, I think in in contrast to sometimes how we think naturally, the biblical authors are more concerned with God's justice than his love. We think of God, and, and sometimes I've heard it said, well, you know, if God doesn't offer salvation to anybody or everybody, well, that's not loving, and I don't want to believe in a God who isn't loving. If, if God says that sin is wrong, then God's not loving, and I don't want to believe in a God who's loving. But the great concern of Paul when he opens up the book of Romans in its first three chapters is not how can God be seen as loving and not save people. That's not his concern. His concern is how can God forgive people and still be seen as just? His concern is not that God would appear unloving, but that God would appear unjust. And the answer is Jesus Christ. How can God forgive people of their sin and still be just? By letting no sin go unpunished. Because those people whom he has forgiven have had their sin, whether they believed in Jesus before he died or whether we believe in Jesus after he died, they have had their sin paid for at the cross. When the righteous son of God dies for sins he did not commit. And how can God, as Paul puts in Romans 3, be both just and the justifier of those who believe? By putting forth Christ as the payment for our sin. And so we have to start by understanding that God is just. He will treat every sin with what it deserves. Though he often does not treat sinners with what they deserve. Every sin is punished. Some sinners are not. Because Christ is punished in their place. Mercy and grace can only truly be understood against the backdrop of God's mercy. And by the way, it is is the fact that God has shown mercy to sinners who deserve his just punishment that shows his love. How does he show mercy to sinners? By taking the punishment on himself. How does he show love to sinners? By taking the punishment on himself. So what is mercy? Well, in order to understand mercy, I want to talk a little bit about, what is, about both grace and mercy today. Mercy is a negative. Grace is a positive. I, I don't mean good or bad. I mean subtraction and addition. Mercy is the removal of something. I think the best way I've ever heard mercy defined is as God's concern for the miserable plight of sinners. God's concern for the miserable plight of sinners. In mercy, God rescues us out of the condition that we have created for ourselves and that we deserve. And in grace, he lavishes blessing upon us. Mercy removes punishment. Grace gives blessings. A.W. Tozer said, as judgment is God's justice confronting moral inequity, as judgment is God's justice confronting moral inequity, so mercy is the goodness of God confronting human suffering and guilt. Mercy is God's concern for the miserable plight of of sinners. And if you put together everything that I've said today, your mind should be blown at this point. Do you see it? What is the miserable plight of sinners? It is God's wrath for sin. But if God's mercy is His concern for sinners, and His judgment is, and justice is the pouring out of His own wrath, that means that what God has concern for is that people would experience His own wrath. What does God save us from? Himself. He saves us from himself. This is what it means in James 2 when James says, mercy triumphs over judgment. God doesn't suspend his justice. He treats our sin justly upon his son. So that mercifully he might remove the consequences of our sin. We see these so often connected together. In Exodus 34, Moses is on Mount Sinai and he's receiving the law from God, this this covenant of of law and obedience with the people. And Moses says, I want to see you, Lord. And, And God says, you can't, nobody can see me and live. But I will hide you in the cleft of the rock and I'll pass by and then I'll let you see what's left over. And as the Lord passes by in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, this is what what Yahweh, that's God's name, uh, this is what he says to Moses. And this is so important because it's God's commentary on God. It's God telling us who he is. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. There's God's first move. His first move is to proclaim himself as gracious and merciful and slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. What's God's second move? But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of, their fa- of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. God's mercy does not suspend his justice, but it is his first move. Again, I think it was Tozer who said that God's first move is always towards grace and mercy, but will deal in wrath where his grace and mercy is despised. And that's exactly what we see here in Exodus, that God wants us to know first that he is a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, but who by no means will clear the guilty. For the rest of Scripture, through the Psalms and the prophets, this becomes the most, uh, the the favorite description of God. And of course it would, because it's God's description of God. And so the, the biblical authors, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, use this over and over, But I think maybe mercy sometimes is best seen and not so much defined, and that brings us to 2 Samuel. Now, this is one of my very favorite scripture passages, and I'm so excited to share it with you today. But we have to understand the context. Israel had demanded a king, and they were not supposed to have a king. God was to be their king. But they wanted a king, and they stated explicitly that they wanted a king to be like the rest of the nations. And God says, okay, I'll give you a king. And he picks, uh, the, uh, he, Saul becomes king, and Saul is tall and strong and handsome and, and cowardly. And he behaves wrongly, and God rejects him as king. And once God rejects Saul as king... He appoints David, the youngest son, which is really out of place, of a man named Jesse from Bethlehem, as the next king. And and uh, David begins to serve in Saul's household. And Saul's son, Jonathan, and David become fast friends. And Saul, in his growing anger and rage and Uh, maybe a little bit of insanity, begins to seek the life of David. He wants to kill David. And and Jonathan helps David escape. And in 1 Samuel 19, Saul attempts to kill David. In 1 Samuel 20, Jonathan helps him escape. And now there's this ongoing kind of uh, scenario where Saul is trying to kill David. David refuses to kill Saul. And the battle kind of rages between these two. But in 2 Samuel 1, both Saul and Jonathan die. And and in, in kingdoms where there are kings, the transition from one king to another can be violent. Kings feel insecure and threatened. And so what often happens is when the new king comes in, he kills all the family members of the previous king so that nobody can claim that they are the rightful king. We see this with David's children. They fought over who would be king. Uh, it, It happens quite frequently. And so when Saul and Jonathan die, there's fear about what might happen. And Jonathan had a son, a young son, whose name was Mephibosheth. And in this transition, after Saul and Jonathan die, his nurse, his nanny, picks him up and flees Jerusalem with him. And, and we're told that he fell when he was fleeing from Jerusalem and somehow in this fall injured his legs, maybe his back, I don't know, and he becomes crippled. Well, his life is not so much in danger anymore, and so he, he's still around, but he, he's reduced as a cripple to, a, to being a beggar. Once the son of a prince Now a a crippled beggar. And in 1 Samuel 9, David is now king in Israel. And we pick up here. Follow along with me as I read to you 2 Samuel 9. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now this is such a contrast to so many other kings where they want to kill everybody. And David, he's not like... We would expect David to say, is there anyone left of the house of Saul that I might kill them so they might not have any right to claim the throne? That's not what David does. He says, is there anyone less left from the house of Saul that I might show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David and the king said to him, Are you Zeba?" And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Zeba said to the king, He is in the house of Makir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir to the son of Amiel at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth? And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father. And you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord, the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, For he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. This is mercy and grace. This person who David doesn't even know. Doesn't even know if he even exists out there. But because of his affection for Jonathan, he brings this crippled beggar into his household he, he, he shows him mercy by removing him from the street. And he could have even said, well, I'm going to remove you from the street. I'm going to restore to you all that belonged to your father, and you're going to go live there. And that would have been merciful. But David doesn't stop at mercy. He also shows incredible grace. He says, I'm going to rescue you out of the street. I'm going to rescue you out of your miserable plight. I'm going to bring you out of the situation you are in and restore everything that you once had. And I'm going to lavish all the blessing on you that is is a a part of being part of my household. You're going to be treated like my son. You're going to eat at my table. And all of it was for Jonathan's sake. The reality, church, is that we're all Mephibosheths. We're all crippled by sin. It's a death sentence. We don't have any ability to stand before the king on our own. All we can do is beg. But God in his great mercy and his concern for the miserable plight of what our sin had brought upon us, has rescued us out of that. And not only has God shown us mercy. In rescuing us out of our sin, he has shown us grace by lavishing blessing on us, by adopting us into his family, by treating us as sons and daughters when all we are is spiritual beggars. And the reality is, he has done it all on the basis of his affection for another, for Christ. It's not because of us that God gives us mercy and grace. It's because of Christ. It is for Christ's sake and on his merit because he died in our place and was resurrected again, bearing the punishment of our sin and shame that God has rescued us and lavished blessing on us. This is is who we are. Mephibosheth deserved nothing, earned nothing, and offered nothing nothing. And yet David pulls him out of the street. That's mercy. And David gave him wealth and let him dine at his own table. That's grace. David did all of that, not because Mephibosheth deserved it, but because he loved Jonathan. And God has pulled us in mercy out of the miserable plight of hell and wrath that our sin deserves. That's mercy. And in grace, he has, Ephesians 2, or 1, lavished every spiritual blessing on us in the heavenly places. And he's done so not because we deserved it, but because his son deserves it. We're all like Mephibosheth, deserving nothing. If you have never received God's mercy, if you're still relying on your own spiritual begging, If you're still trying to be good enough, or you think that God won't deal with you in justice or wrath, my prayer for you today is that you would turn to him and on the merits of the life and death and resurrection of Christ, receive his grace and mercy through faith and trust in Christ and what he has done. But for those of us who are the church, who are believers, I think there's only two responses that are fitting here. And the first is to marvel, to marvel at who God is and what he has done. The reality is that sin makes us miserable. That's part of our miserable plight. Yes, Hebrews tells us that sin offers fleeting pleasures. But if we're all really, really honest, most of us think, well, if I could just have that thing, I'll be happy and we're content for a moment and it still just leaves us empty and hollow and miserable. Sin makes great boasts about offering happiness to us, but it always disappoints. Sin makes us miserable, but ultimately what we've been saved from is not just the miserable effects of our sin in this life, but the wrath of God in the next. God has saved us from himself. God's first move is always towards mercy and grace, and then deals in wrath where his mercy and grace is despised. We should marvel at God's character. But secondly... We should be merciful. We should be merciful. We we cannot ever gather here and sit in this room and then look at the world outside of us with disgust or fear or apathy. Because God didn't. He looked down from heaven to to us in our miserable plight, and he rescued us out of that. And he has sent us on a mission to go out and to share the gospel with those who are still in that miserable plight. We can't isolate ourselves from the world. Scripture calls us to insulate ourselves from the world, but never to isolate ourselves from the world. And, and for two reasons. There's two reasons why we must look mercifully upon the world. And that is that, that the world is miserable in its sin. I would, I would say one of the things we're seeing crystal clear in our world today is that the more people defi- try and define themselves by their sin, create an identity for themselves that is a sinful identity. The more depressed they get, that's where sin leads us, and we shouldn't look at the world and go, oh, you stupid people! How foolish! Why can't you get it?" We shouldn't look at them and say, "Oh, how disgusting! Oh, I can't! I can't! Ha- I can't be around that! Oh, you might have an influence in my children if I befriend you. Oh, I don't. You know, I just." I don't know, that's outside of my comfort zone. I'm not not good at that. Yeah, hospitality is good for those who who are are good at it. You know what's interesting? Hospitality doesn't show up in any of the lists of gifts in Scripture. And it's commanded of every believer. We don't get to say, oh, that's for those who are good at it. We all have to be good at it. And uh, quite interestingly, when Peter tells us to practice hospitality, uh, God knows us well, he says, practice hospitality without grumbling. Because it's what we do. The pastor stands up and he says, you are commanded by God to open your heart, your home, and your life to those who don't know Jesus. And we go, oh, I don't have time for that. Oh, my house isn't big enough for that. It's not clean enough for that. I don't have nice enough things for that. I'm not naturally good at that. Here's the modern one. I'm an introvert. Good for you. I'm glad. Recharge your batteries alone. And then go practice hospitality. We are to practice hospitality. We are to look mercifully upon the world around us without grumbling. Because God has been merciful to us. The world is miserable in its sin. I think we were all miserable in COVID. How would you feel if you found out that from the first day of COVID... There was an organization in the world that had a cure. Not a vaccine, not a mask, a cure, but did not share that with the world. Brothers and sisters, we have the cure not for COVID, but for death and wrath and hell and judgment. and We can't hide it. We must look mercifully upon the world. And and the second reason is because ultimately that sin not only makes people miserable, it uh, it leads them to God's justice and wrath. The end of sinners is judgment. And we cannot be content with that end for other people and discontent with that end for us. If I'm content... For, God, for, for my end to be God's mercy and grace, then I must proclaim that mercy and grace to the world around us. The mission of Trinity is to share the gospel with the lost and then equip the saints to do the work of the ministry so that the gospel might go again. Because mature sheep reproduce. And so we take steps here together to love God and we go out there and we make him known. And how do we do that? We do that by seeking to engage in relationships with the households around us, hoping that in the next five years, we may have gospel opportunities with 500 people, 500 households, which really all that requires of each and every one of us is to make one new friend this year and then one new friend the next, and the next, and the next, and the next. And if we all do that, if all, not off all of the individuals at Trinity, if all of the households at Trinity do that, we will exceed 500 in five years. Even if none of those households then come do the same. The math, 500 sounds big. It's really not. God has been gracious and merciful to us. He has rescued us out of our miserable plight and sent us on a mission to rescue others, to, to, as Jude says, to snatch them out of the fire. That's the goal. And what motivates us is the love of God in Christ, who has lavished both mercy and blessing and grace. Father, we we love you and we thank you for the mercy and the grace that you have shown in us. We are all lame, crippled beggars. Our, Our sin has completely destroyed us. And yet you have, on the merits of somebody else, rescued us, pulled us out of that pit, healed us, and lavished on us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Lord, may we marvel at the greatness of the fact that you have rescued us from yourself. You have loved us so much that you would rescue us from your own justice and wrath. and That you delight first to show mercy, to be slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Lord, may we be motivated by your mercy not only to stand in awe of you, but to proclaim the gospel to the world around us. To build relationships and friendships with people that we might tell them what you have done for us and how they might receive the gift of your mercy and grace through Christ. Lord, if there is anyone here who has not received that gift of your mercy and grace today, would you you bring us to a place of willing submission uh, to receive your forgiveness in Christ and by trusting him and his goodness and his righteousness and his death and resurrection in our place to pay for our sin and give us life. Lord, for those of us who are believers, may we be reminded of that truth day in and day out. May we live ever with the gospel before us. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. What an